if you're new to this whole world of baby led weaning and starting solid foods, you might still be on the fence as to whether this approach is going to work for you. And if that's the case, I want to send you my free feeding guide called Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby? This is a guide that contains a decision tree map that you can work your way through to determine if this is the right approach for you guys and then when it's time to start. Grab your copy of Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby on my website at babyledweaning.co slash resources. I was doing my breakfast dishes this morning, turned the garbage disposal on, and then heard that terrible noise when you know something is in the disposal, but like you can totally tell the damage has already been done. Sure enough, it was an easy peasy tiny spoon, totally shredded, which if I've learned anything about these baby lead weaning spoons from Easy Peasy is that the garbage disposal and the dog both love them. And I was bummed because it's one of my favorite colors that they make, the light gray line, which is called pewter. But my garbage disposal disaster, I guess it came at just the right time because Easy Peasy is having their annual Mother's Day sale from this Friday to Sunday, so May 10th to 12th. You can get 20% off all of the Easy Peasy feeding gear with the affiliate discount code BLWMOM on orders of $50 or more. So this is a great time to stock up at 20% off because my regular Easy Peasy code is usually only for 10% off. So this bump up to 20% off is nice, but it's just for three days. So head to easypeasyfun.com to grab tiny spoons, their tiny cups, and the best suction mats and bowls for baby lead weaning. They have a really cool new bundle maker on their website if you want to group or piece a few items together or If you just don't want to think about it, then just grab one of the Easy Peasy First Foods sets. It has everything you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby led weaning. That code is BLWMOM for 20% off Easy Peasy orders of $50 or more now through Sunday, May 12th at easypeasyfun.com. And happy Mother's Day to you. The allergens that matter is in the egg white. So if we boil an egg, peel off the white and just feed the infant the yolk, that's not going to help to prevent egg allergy. As soon as the baby's ready to eat any food, we shouldn't wait. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Well, hey guys, and welcome back. Today, we're talking about using an egg ladder for babies with egg allergy. Now, an egg ladder, if that's a term that's new to you, and it totally was to me too when I started working in infant feeding because none of my seven kids ever had food allergy, so I wasn't familiar with these different protocols. But basically, an egg ladder is a guide that you use as a framework designed with the aim of working towards inducing tolerance in babies who are allergic to eggs. And you might be like, well, wait, If you're allergic to eggs, shouldn't you have lifelong avoidance of eggs? And wouldn't that be your guiding principle? But as my guest is going to explain today, the answer is no. Today's guest is Karina Venter, PhD, RD. She's been on the podcast in the past to talk about other food allergy-related topics. Karina works very closely with academics, researchers, educators, and practitioners in the area of food allergy prevention and management. Karina Venter is a dietitian licensed to practice nutrition in the United States the United Kingdom, and South Africa. And that's actually a really important point because as we'll discuss in today's interview, the use of egg ladders is way more commonplace in the UK and Canada and other parts of Europe than you would find in the US. And Karina is going to explain why. Karina Venter is a PhD dietitian and an associate professor of pediatrics and allergy and immunology at the Children's Hospital Colorado. 
and University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine. She spent more than 20 years in research and clinical practice focusing on the prevention, diagnosis, and management of food allergies and other allergic diseases. And I actually messaged Karina. I said, hey, I've got a lot of listener questions asking about egg allergies, asking about egg ladders. I wanted to know who I should have on the podcast to help answer them. And she said, me. I developed the first ever published ladder, the MAP, and then the subsequent IMAP milk ladders. So I'm really familiar with this field. And she definitely is. She spent hours debating the egg ladder for prevention. She actually wrote that section for the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology guidelines that just got published. So this was, we actually recorded this just before they came out, but now at the time of releasing the episode, the Prevention for the Development of Food Allergy in Infants and Young Children, EAACI guidelines are out. Karina is on the committee that wrote them. Basically, this is the person you want to be talking to or listening to rather if you're learning about egg ladders. So if your baby has an egg allergy or if you suspect an egg allergy or even if you think your baby is egg intolerant, which Karina is going to explain in the episode is actually not even a thing to be egg intolerant, I think you're going to love this episode. And hang tight because Karina is also going to share what you should do if you want to use an egg ladder for your baby with egg allergy, but your own practitioner isn't familiar with it. Because if you're in the US, chances are your pediatrician is not going to know what you're talking about when you mention an egg ladder because Karina is involved in teaching medical students about these topics. She's very well versed in how to talk to your primary care pediatric practitioner if you're educating yourself about some of these tools that aren't as widely used in the United States, but are in other countries and are certainly evidence-based and research-backed. So as always, the information that you hear on this podcast, not intended to replace the medical guidance of your doctor or practitioner. And there's a lot of like data and research and publications and guidelines that Karina is talking about in this episode, which I know can be a little bit hard to grasp. But for those of you studying egg allergy in your babies, you're going to want to check out the source documents that she's talking about. I'm going to link to all of them in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash one, two, four. So with no further ado, let's dive in to using an egg ladder for babies with egg allergy an interview with Karina Venter, PhD, RD. All right. Well, Karina, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me again. Okay. Last time you were here, we were talking about why you don't need to wait three to five days before trying new foods. And that, I just want you to know, is one of the most downloaded episodes ever. So you're a very popular person and I know you're a very busy person. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about egg ladders. So tell us what an egg ladder is, if you don't mind. Okay. So I was so excited when you asked me to come talk about the egg ladder, because I think I published the first ever ladder, which was the milk ladder. And it was because the doctors emailed me and kept asking me what comes before chocolate, candy, and what goes after a muffin. And so I thought, well, I better come up with some ladder structure of introducing milk. But today we're going to talk about the egg ladder. And so basically how we develop the ladders is we look at the particular protein. So in this case, the egg protein, we look at foods containing the egg protein and we then list them or grade them according to amount of egg protein present and time of heating and cooking. So at the bottom of the ladder, you would normally get a cookie, which is well-baked. It's got a very small amount of egg protein in. And then as you go up the ladder, you may end up with something like custard or ice cream, which has got a lot of egg in. It's heated at a very low temperature, which is about a 60 degrees Celsius, which I think is about 120 Fahrenheit or perhaps 130 Fahrenheit for only a limited number of times. So, 
So that's really how it's structured. Smallest amount of egg to highest amount of egg, and then highest temperature and longest time of cooking up to lowest temperature to um, lowest amount of cooking. Okay, and egg ladders for babies or children with egg intolerance or egg allergy? So first of all, egg intolerance. You know, it's the definitions, um, again, that fascinates me. We don't actually see egg intolerance. We really talk about the non-IgE-mediated egg allergies, which some people may refer to as intolerances. But I do want to make sure to say that really, strictly speaking, it's an allergy because it's mediated by the immune system. And then we have the proper IgE-mediated or immediate type egg allergies. So in most cases, these ladders are safest to use in the non-IgE-mediated egg allergy or the egg intolerances. We in the U.S. do not use the ladders for IgE-mediated egg allergies, but it is very successfully used in the United Kingdom. There's a number of studies coming out of Ireland soon where they use the egg ladders at home or in primary care in children with egg allergies, and it's also very successfully used in Canada. Okay, but I'm confused because I know from the, I'm more familiar with the milk ladder that are out there that come out of the UK. They actually say, unless I'm looking at an older version, don't use for IgE mediated food allergy, but you're saying it's okay to use the dairy ladders. Obviously check with your pediatrician, of course, ahead of time, but it is okay to use the ladders if you have IgE mediated egg or milk allergy. So I think it would be a stretch to say for me, it's okay to use. Okay. But what I can tell you is that the milk ladder is used in IgE-mediated food allergy in children with in, in the United Kingdom. So in the United Kingdom, the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology guidelines say, don't ever use the egg ladder if the child has got uncontrollable asthma, a history of anaphylaxis, or has previously reacted to very small amounts of milk. But other than those high-risk infants, the milk ladder is used in primary care. It's also used in Ireland. Again, some fascinating studies coming out of that, even how the milk ladder and the egg ladder can induce tolerance development in the children. So the sooner you start getting the child on a milk or an egg ladder, the more likely they are to outgrow their milk and egg allergy. It's also used very successfully in Canada. Um, I work with a number of um, allergists that's using it there. But I want to reiterate that the egg and milk ladders is not used currently in the United States in IgE-mediated milk and egg allergy. And I think it will be a long time before it's going to be used for that purpose in the U.S. Would you be able to share why you think that? I'm curious, too, because I'm like, why is all this data always coming out of the U.K.? Like yeah. American parents are like, can I use it or not? I think there's a number of reasons I often get asked that. So first of all, I think there's much more uh, legal issues and legal components to managing or practicing medicine in the United States, opposed to perhaps Ireland and the UK and Canada. Um, number of allergists, I would say, is probably just as important as the legal sides of things. In Ireland, there's now two and a half allergists. I think the one is going to be qualified soon and they will have three allergists in the whole of the country. Um, in the United Kingdom, you can almost count the allergists on your two hands. And then, I mean, Canada as well, there's not a large number of allergists for the populations. So there's many more allergists in the United States per population than in the other countries. What happens then in particularly the United Kingdom and in Ireland is that the dietitian have a very much of an extended scope role. So in the United Kingdom, I ran my own allergy clinics. I did my own 
blood test, skin test, made my diagnosis, which is definitely not going to happen here in the United States. And also, I think training of dietitians in terms of food allergy is also much more in place in the United Kingdom and in Ireland than here in the United States. So we have now about 400 allergy specialist dietitians in the United Kingdom that happens to manage these children with milk and egg allergies very successfully without the input of an allergist or perhaps just some guidance of an allergist, but not necessarily face-to-face contact because we just do not have enough allergists in the United Kingdom to look after all these children. Well, that's amazing because as a registered dietitian, I remember initially finding all the, the latter info and being like, this is so interesting because they're continually referencing a dietitian where in the United States, when you're talking about food allergy management, the mention of a registered dietitian, you almost never hear it. And I know you are a PhD RD, and I just want to point out that your background, you are licensed in countries besides the United States. Is that correct as a dietitian? Yes. So I'm licensed in the United Kingdom and in South Africa as well. So I have been traveling and studying quite a bit, but it has just been fascinating. And I definitely think um, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, so the Quad AI, as we're saying it, they are now investing a lot in terms of educating dietitians and really perhaps expanding our scope a little bit. But this happened in the United Kingdom 20 years ago. And this is why the dietitians are so far in advance or much better advanced in the UK versus to what's happening in the US. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. Can I ask you then if you would talk a little bit about the allergy course that you have for U.S. dietitians? Because I think that's a good segue. Like, hey, there's a lot of dietitians who listen. They have a lot more training in the U.K., but you're doing something to help educate U.S. dietitians. Would that be okay? Yes. So about six months ago, I started a course in pediatric food allergy. I run the course with my very good friend and longtime colleague, Marion Gruch from Mount Sinai Hospital. We are running it with the support of food allergy I'm thinking about research, education, research and education. Yeah. So we're running it with the support of FAIR. So if you do go on the food allergy research and education website, you will find a link to the pediatric allergy or the pediatric nutrition course. It's an online course. We have one session a month. So the dietitians listen to an asynchronous presentation um, once a month. And then we do two hours face-to-face teaching via Zoom. We tend to prepare the lectures, myself and Marion, sometimes with the help of an allergist, but our face-to-face sessions is normally 
50% question and answer with one of our celebrity allergists and then 50% question and answer and some case studies and perhaps some practical work with me and Marion. So far, we've had really good feedback. Um, Marion and I are very lucky that we know most of the allergists in the States. And we've had some amazing people like uh, Dr. Antonella Chianferoni assisting us to lecture on eosinophilic diseases, Dr. Anja Novak helping us to lecture on food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. So I think it's a very good course for dietitians. And we teach the basics as well as advanced knowledge. And we provide a lot of extra information if people want to read up. I love that you mentioned celebrity allergists because I can think of one off the top of my head. The only like celebrity I know from the allergy world is actually infectious disease side. It's Dr. Fauci. But to me, you are a celebrity in the allergy world. And I also want to point out for the dietitians listening, if you're interested in taking that course, I'll link to it on the show notes for this episode at blwpodcast.com. But you also get 32 continuing education credits. Is that right as well? Yes, yes. And also at the moment, literally next week is the deadline for all the book chapters because we're writing a book alongside the course. And so hopefully from um, the end of next year, the book will be available too. So you'll be having the course and you'll wow. having the book that goes alongside the course. And if you need images of babies eating the different allergenic foods and what the reactions look like, especially with regard to different skin color, because that's something our audience has really been interested in, is that when you're describing what hives are, for example, red raised itchy patches, well, on a child with darker skin, that looks very different. And I know there's a big movement in the medical world to educate medical students about how to care for all different types of patients, including those of different skin colors. But parents are like, well, what does this look like on my baby if my baby has black skin or brown skin? We have tons of photos of those if you would like to include them in your book. I know the parents would love to love to share their baby's reaction pictures because seeing really is believing in some of those cases. Oh, that's wonderful because I do actually secretly follow you on Instagram. And so I watch the videos of the babies eating the allergens all the time. And the allergy in the dietitian in me can't help to think, is that baby going to react or be okay? And it's just so wonderful to see they're all perfectly okay. They are eating their allergens and they are just fine. But in <laughs> terms of different presentations in children of different skin colors, absolutely agree. And I work very closely with Dr. Ruchi Gupta from Chicago, where she's doing a lot of research on um, racial effects of food allergies and how it presents. And my paper that I'm hoping to submit by the end of this week, look at different filacrin mutations, how that relates to eczema in people from different ethnic groups, and then how that eventually presents as food allergies. So totally agree with you. Okay. I know there's good data to support early introduction of peanut to help prevent peanut allergy. We know that from the LEAP trial and parents are pretty aware of that. Is there good data to support early introduction of egg in order to prevent egg allergy? Yes. So first of all, I have to say that once again, the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, their allergy prevention guidelines go as far as to say, give egg before peanut. It's the only guidelines in the world where they make that strongest statement. The latest guidance that's just come out of America and or consensus statement, it's technically correctable. Um, one of the co-authors uh, recommend early introduction of both peanut and egg. And I would say that's pretty much going along with what most international prevention guidelines are currently saying and those coming out as well. There's six studies conducted um, in terms of early introduction of egg. One of the very first trials where they gave the infants raw pasteurized egg had to be stopped prematurely because the infants got anaphylaxis. 
The other studies using different forms of boiled egg were all very safe. For three of the five studies using baked or boiled egg um, didn't have significant reduction in egg allergy outcomes, but there was definitely less allergy in the early introduction group. So, you know, it's that fight we have with a p-value as academics and scientists that can be confusing. But two studies definitely showed significant reduction in egg allergy. Both studies used boiled egg. The one used boiled egg, the mom's boiled egg, and the other study used boiled egg powder equivalent to about 10 to 15 minutes of boiling an egg. So I'd say that the data is good, particularly, again, you know, in the infants with eczema. But one of the studies where the mothers actually boiled the egg was conducted in the general population. And so I would say um, all babies can start eating egg, boiled egg, well-cooked egg when they are ready to eat. You saying that about boiled eggs makes me think of something because generally when we do egg introduction, I will do fried egg with strips of egg because a baby can pick it up and feed themselves. Now, some parents like to do scrambled egg, but early on a baby would likely not have their pincer grasp or be able to pick up small pieces of scrambled egg. Do you think it matters if the first offering of egg is fried versus boiled versus scrambled? Is there any reason to differentiate or is egg is egg is egg because it's all the same protein? We don't know that. We spend hours and hours just debating baked egg versus boiled egg. So I think based on no data whatsoever, as long as it's the fried egg is pretty solid and well-cooked, and it's particularly the egg white that we want to be well-cooked, I'd be very confident to give it to a child. What we have to remember is that the allergens that matter is in the egg white. So if we boil an egg, peel off the white, and just feed the infant the yolk, that's not going to help to prevent egg allergy because we really want to get the egg white in. And um, in the one study that I've referred to, which was called the EAT study, it was very poor compliance with the boiled egg because of the texture of egg white when it's boiled. So I would say if fried egg helped the infants to at least eat the egg and continue to eat the egg, I wouldn't go against that. But it has to be just really well cooked. See, that's so interesting about the quote unquote poor compliance. Like to me, that's just some researcher's interpretation of watching a few babies make a face when they try hard boiled eggs. Hard-boiled egg, the egg white texture is so unique, that rubbery texture. You find that almost nowhere else. I think it's a fabulous option for babies. I would hate for a parent to like dive deep in the EAT study and be like, oh, I can't do boiled egg because the texture is not desirable to the baby. But you do make an important point that the egg white is where the protein is. And you know, there are still pediatricians out there telling parents 20-year-old data, which was when I was in dietitian school, it was wait until the baby is one to introduce egg white. And some parents will still say, oh, my pediatrician told me that too. But we know that that's not true, right? You need to be doing the white early and often at around six months of age, correct? Yes. And if they have eczema, you know, we can really drop it down to four months. But, you know, what better example do, do you guys said that's doing, you know, the baby late weaning? As soon as the baby's ready to eat any food, we shouldn't wait. You know, if that's six months, fair enough. If it's four and a half months, then we shouldn't wait. So um, I think we really should be um, more focused on, on baby cues, which again, I know that baby led weaning is very good about. But the interesting thing about the EAT study was they probably needed you as advisor on the study. Um, we asked the mothers to boil the egg for about 10 minutes minimum and then liquidize the egg into a, like a puree, which they then mixed with either cereal, baby rice or yogurt. And that was where the poor compliant was because often when they liquidized the egg, it was bitty which the babies didn't like. And so perhaps if we did just cut up the egg and, and taught the babies from the beginning to tolerate the egg white, even though it's a bit rubbery, we might have had better compliance. So 
we still need to learn about feeding babies, particularly in terms of feeding them allergens. Okay, one thing that I've been dying to ask you from one dietitian to another, when you're looking at these ladders, the egg ladder, the dairy ladder, and the guidance documents, if they have recipes in them, all the recipes have added sugar. I mean, if babies and children under age two are not supposed to have added sugar, and I know that's the American Academy of Pediatrics and that American clinicians are not as inclined to use the ladders, but why do the recipes all have so much sugar in them? So um, I'm so glad you asked me that because I get asked that a lot. And, you know, hands up, looking back, particularly about the recipes we had in the first milk ladder, we could have done a lot better. But because of that, we have now published the IMAP ladder, which is instead of 12 steps, we have six steps. And all the recipes in the IMAP ladder are free from sugar. So we've used applesauce or we've used banana, you know, to sweeten the cookie. Also, again, banana or um, another fruit to sweeten the muffin. And we also gave savory um, options. So, you know, in the cookie, we've used, uh, we've got the cheese finger or a cheese stick with the dairy-free cheese in it. And the muffin, we also have a spinach and dairy-free option. So we've definitely tried to um, develop the the newest ladders to be uh, free from sugar. And, And so a point well made. Something else that I'm very excited about, and I can email you when it gets published, I've worked with um, Marian Groach again from Mount Sinai, um, another dietitian from Mount Sinai and a dietitian from Harvard to develop a baked egg and baked milk cookbook. And we have made a point of including recipes only with very limited or no sugar. We really try to expand the options of savory um, foods. And we've also increased the fiber content. And so we've used high fiber muffins and breads wherever we could. This is why it's like so important that dietitians are innately involved in food allergy stuff. Like it's so obvious that this recipe should not have added sugar in them, but you can tell the old ones like no dietitian helped make them. So I think that's fabulous. I would love to learn more about the cookbook and I know my audience is like clamoring for it too. And something else I want to say, and really I have no conflict of interest with anybody in the industry making cookies or cupcakes. Actually, I looked up last night the um, the malted milk biscuit or cookie that we use as first step of the ladder as a commercial option has almost two grams of sugar per cookie. And a cupcake, if you buy it from King Super, has 33 grams of sugar. But at the moment, if mothers don't bake, we're stuck. I know. And the only commercial options we have are sugary options. So not only does allergy dietitians have to get involved in diagnosis and management, but we really also need to get involved in working more with industry to develop products that's suitable for our patients. Besides baby led weaning, what other type of podcasts do you like to listen to? Well, if you're into true crime and you also dig traveling, I want to tell you about a new podcast you are going to love. The new podcast is called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that all take place on vacation. So the show is hosted by a true crime fanatic and her comedy writer husband, and he has a TV producing partner. So Slaycation brings a totally unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, what the heck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong from the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, their two recently engaged lovebirds, whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended up underwater. Every episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that will intrigue you. I think you're going to love the discussion between the longtime married couple and the business partners. They also happen to be an Emmy-nominated TV producer's 
Every episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that are going to keep your next family vacation from becoming your last. So if you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, actually, it was so before I met you way back on episode 34, we did an episode called Dairy Ladder for Milk Reintroduction with Meg Mason. Meg is a mom whose first child, her only child, has a dairy allergy or intolerance. I can't remember the particulars of it, but basically heard about the ladder, but she's in the US. So she did research on her own and was like, why is all this stuff coming out of the UK? She did the ladder, had success with it. She was sharing her story. I was like, hey, come on the podcast, tell everyone the story. She actually went and she was dying about the sugar in it. She's not a dietitian, but she's like, there's so much added sugar in these recipes and I follow all your stuff, Katie. So she went and made new recipes without added sugar I'll send you a link to them because they're pretty good. And if you guys want to check it out, it's at blwpodcast.com forward slash 34. Meg actually shares her free recipes for the different amounts of milk and the baked products. Again, it's not peer review published work. It's just her experience as a mom recipes that worked because she was looking for a way to keep the sugar out of them. We can never learn enough from mothers or parents with food allergic children. I am following them all on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Because I learn so much all the time and I will definitely look it up. And what a huge and important resource. Can a child outgrow an egg allergy? Yes. About 75% of children with either milk or egg allergy become tolerant to at least baked egg or milk, which is like halfway up the ladder and by about two to three years of age. Depending on whether you look at data from the States or data from Europe, about 80 to 90% of children will completely outgrow their egg allergy. Unfortunately, those that remain to be allergic to egg or milk after about five, six years of age, they tend to have more severe forms and they become really unlikely to ever outgrow it. But, you know, chances are good that the child is going to outgrow their egg allergy, probably around about 80 to 90 percent. Again, I'm not an expert in food allergy, but anecdotally, it feels like egg is that one where some people can tolerate it by itself, but not baked into something or vice versa. But like, When it comes to seafood, you're either like, it's our shellfish, let's say. You're all allergic or you're not. If you can't have shrimp, you can't have shrimp raw or shrimp cooked. Is there something unique about egg protein, about like whether it's by itself or baked into something that we don't see with the other potentially allergenic foods? Yes. So first, shrimp is the interesting one. It's one of the few, actually now shrimp alongside nuts become more allergenic when we cook it. So a roasted peanut is more allergenic than a raw peanut. Cooked shrimp is more allergenic than a raw shrimp, even though most of us won't eat raw shrimp. So, which is why normally we would say, if you're shrimp allergic, just don't eat it. We see the opposite with milk and egg because milk and egg have got some linear proteins or epitopes. So you can bake them as much as you like, but they're going to stay linear and you're always going to have allergic reactions to them. The majority of milk and egg allergic children are allergic to what we call the conformational epitopes. So if you can try and visualize like a ball of wool all rolled up and then the cat start and unravel this ball of wool. So all of a sudden, the bits that were close together in this ball when it was rolled up are now really one is in the study and one is in the lounge. And the immune system can't put two and two together because they're too far apart. And that's what's happened when you bake milk and egg. So these conformational epitopes basically unravel. The immune system can't recognize it anymore. And therefore, we say children become tolerant, but they've probably been tolerant right from the start. 
which is really why I find the data coming out of Ireland so fascinating, showing you get the kid on the ladder ASAP, and probably by the time they want, they can eat most things on the egg or the milk ladder. So that's what's different about milk and egg, is the fact that they've got different kinds of epitopes that react differently to heat treatment, whereas in peanut and shellfish, we have not found any epitopes that become less allergenic when you cook or roast. Karina, I know I can ask you this question because as a PhD RD, you also are an educator and you teach medical students. What do we say to parents who are like, I'm in the United States, my baby has an egg allergy, I want to use an egg ladder, I go to my pediatrician, they say, I don't know what that is. What should they do? Okay, so this is if it was me, okay? I'd go to my pediatrician with the printed ladder, I'll explain to my pediatrician how it works, the fact that it's been done and used very safely in Europe, United Kingdom, and Ireland, there's a good chance it can induce tolerance in my child. I understand my child is at risk of having allergic reactions when I give it at home, but I need to have my epinephrine. I need to be taught how to use it appropriately. If my child's got wheezing or asthma, I need to have all asthma medication and inhalers in place. And if I can then get the blessing of my doctor, Knowing that there's a risk of reaction, but I know how to deal with the reaction. My cell phone is always charged. I always make sure I have a signal in place and I know how to get to the nearest hospital and I can definitely phone 911. With all those caveats in place, if I can get my doctor on board, then I would do it at home. Because I think it's just important to be well-educated about what the ladder is. That it's not something you can do without any risk. If you're going to do something with risk, you've got to have rescue medication in place. You need to know about how to get to the nearest hospital in the safest and quickest possible way. And then I, I would use it. And, you know, but whether your uh, pediatrician is going to agree and support you, I don't know. But I think in COVID times, when we've had to start doing so many things via telemedicine, your chances may be better at this point that you will agree. Personally, I can say that every time I wanted my asthma inhalers to be um, renewed, I had to go in and get a lung function test. In the COVID times, I just call my doctor and they say, yes, we'll fax the prescription through. So I think people are trying to do things at home and without uh, coming to a doctor's office, if possible at all. And I think as a parent, you also need to know all those things before you do it. If a parent suspects their baby has an egg allergy, what should they do? Should they do the egg ladder on their own? Should they get diagnosed? Should they talk to their pediatrician? What do we do? Yeah, I think it's important. We know now very clearly from the prevention studies, never avoid an allergen that you don't need to avoid. And so it's important to get the diagnosis. So get to your pediatrician, get a referral to a pediatric allergist, at least get a clear diagnosis. And then once the pediatric allergist has had a chance to listen to your child's history, severity of past reactions, look at how much egg the child ate before they had the reaction, um, look at comorbidities, does, it, does the child wheeze, does the child have asthma, what does the family history of allergies look like, then you can really make a very well-informed plan about how best to manage your child's egg allergy, rather than just being in the dark, thinking, I, I have got a kid with an egg allergy, I'll avoid it, but I don't have my rescue medication, and I don't know how severe reactions can get. So really important to get that diagnosis from an allergist. Well, Karina, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to link to everything you talked about. I know I'm probably the most annoying podcast host to you because after we do an interview, you guys, I email her like 50 times. Can you send me this paper that you mentioned? Can you send me that one? 
but I do it because the research is important. And we link to every single article, paper, many of which Karina has published. She's the lead researcher on this. She, I wrote to her and said, could you tell me who to have on the podcast to talk about egg ladders? And she said, well, me, because I wrote the egg ladder. I wrote the first dairy ladder. I love it. And I love that you're willing to share it with parents because there are a lot of researchers who can't speak directly to parents. And I know you're working with parents on a daily basis, but also educating practitioners, also doing the research. I don't know how you do it all, but everything you've ever written that you mentioned on this podcast, we'll put it on the show notes, go to blwpodcast.com and all the data will be there so that you can make an informed decision for your child along with your medical care team. So thank you so much for being here, Karina. No problem. It's lovely always to be on your podcast. And you know, I am that annoying that I've already sent you a lot of links and papers, but you're welcome to ask me for a few more. More is better. And you know, there's parents out there that read every single word. So I think we put as much of the publications and the research out there so that you, again, can make the most informed decisions versus just, you know, seeing something on Instagram or hearing it on Facebook and wondering whether or not it's true. The point is to, you know, go to the horse's mouth, as we say, you're the one doing the research. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and your expertise with our audience. It's so valuable. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Karina Venter about egg ladders for babies with egg allergies. I know there was a lot of conversation in the interview about publications and guidelines and committees. So if you're researching this idea of an egg ladder for use in your own family, or if you're a practitioner looking to learn more about this approach, I'm going to link to all of the references that Karina mentioned. That'll be in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash one, two, four. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now. <laughs>